um, and they have had a bit of a, a whirlwind of a summer. Um, so we just want to... A couple of quick announcements here for us as we get started. Uh, the, the first one is that next Sunday... Um, oh yeah, we'll do this one first. Uh, men's retreat is two weeks from uh, this weekend. Uh, it'll be uh, October 7th and 8th uh, from 4 to 4, just kind of 24 hours there. We're going to get away. We have a little Airbnb in Walker uh, that has some beds, and then some of us uh, will tent camp, uh, and we'll just enjoy some time together looking at uh, the stages of, of manhood uh, as kind of the content and how we can pray through that stuff, and then we'll just eat and uh, have fun. I think after we check out of our Airbnb on Saturday, we're going to go to Hoffmaster, and there'll be a football contingent and then a hiking contingent. Um, so just do some do some life together there. Uh, so you can sign up on Slack or just let me know or Matt Finnick know. Uh, it'll be a good time. Uh, just some brotherhood here at the church. And then next Sunday is uh, our membership class kicks off. It's four weeks. It will be lunch after the gathering starting next Sunday and then go for four weeks. Um, and it's a great time. If you're new here and want to learn more about our church, it doesn't obligate you to join, uh, but it's a great way to, to learn about our church and also connect with other new people. Uh, if you're looking for community and stuff, uh, it, it, we kind of have these membership classes that kind of become their almost little, uh, their, their little circles uh, of just new people looking to connect. So it's a great way uh, to jump in, learn more about uh, who we are at Redemption City. Uh, so those are our announcements. I will hand it off to our scripture reader, Susie, and we'll get into it. To my point, I'm not as impressive as I think I am, right? <laughs> oh, you love those little uh, humbling moments along the way. But it's truly in those spaces, right, where Jesus gets to be uh, uh, the, the hero here and uh, our little impressive technological light shows and uh, projectors and all that stuff, you know, it just kind of pales in comparison. So hopefully that fades into the background uh, this morning as we are together uh, which is amazing in this beautiful, crisp fall day. And uh, man, we are getting to study the life of Jesus in the gospel, according to Mark. I mean, gosh, does it get any better than this? I'm like, pinch myself. I'm like, I get to do this? Like, I get paid to study the life of Jesus? Oh my gosh, this is going to be good. So, so grab your Bible and prepare to be amazed by Jesus, which is the uh, sermon series that we are in this uh, this fall, and so we're in Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 5, so you're going to need your Bible to follow along with this beautiful story that we have before us. In our text, Jesus encounters two desperate people dealing with the unholy trinity of sickness, suffering, and death. So the dark tone kind of fits the mood here in the text. And these two stories form what scholars call, in very technical language, a sandwich. You know, <laughs> just, just what it sounds like, right? Two stories sandwiched together. My kids thought that was great. Like, the PhD is the best they could come up with for this wonderful phenomenon in Scripture. It's, it's a sandwich. So we get a wonderful Scripture sandwich this morning of two stories. And uh, these two stories told together to drive home Mark's point that Jesus responds to desperate faith with deep compassion. Jesus responds to desperate faith with deep compassion. Uh, but these are not simply historical accounts from the life of Jesus. They invite us to imagine ourselves in the crowd, in Jairus' shoes, in the shoes of this unnamed woman, right? In the place of this 12-year-old girl, right? Jesus meets these two desperate people in tender places, and he's still doing that very much uh, today And just a, a quick story, a personal story, 
um, had to dig back in the archives for a story of some good desperation here in my own life. Uh, But about 11 years ago, as our family was moving here to West Michigan to plant Redemption City Church, we just bought a house. Uh, We had just had our third child, and we were super stoked to get over here and get into the community. My uh, sending church somehow lost somewhere, lost track of, somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000, which was supposed to be paying me. And so... um, that's, maybe the number has grown in my telling as I keep retelling the story here. But, you know, $100,000 is a lot of money. And when you've just bought a house and when you have kids, you know, that, that could be kind of stressful. So I went a couple months without a paycheck, like months, um, just moving into town, wondering, God, what on earth are you doing? I just stepped out to plant a church and, like, trying to figure out what happened to all this money. I'm not getting paid. And let me tell you, I have never prayed so hard in my entire life. Like, I mean, I was so stressed out. I was just freaking out. But that was a season which brought me in that time and in that space to my knees in a way like never before. That dependence upon God, that uncertainty about where the next paycheck was going to come from, all of those things like just pounded me. And I know now, having talked to lots of other church planners, that whenever you start out, embark on a new mission for Jesus to take some new ground in a new place, right? Crazy things happen, right? You know, money disappears or buildings fall through or staff members leave and all kinds of crises tend to happen. But all of those things really help to really rivet us and build into us our dependence on God. That was a season, right, where God was really developing and strengthening my faith as we walked through this couple months. And of course, the, the church ended up finding my money and wired me over my $100,000 and we got paid and, you know, life moved on and life was, life was great. But there was a moment, there were those couple of few months of just not getting, I was just like, God, what are you doing? And so some of you maybe this morning are in a desperate position. Maybe it's not financial, maybe it's health oriented, maybe it's relationship, something in your life that has just kind of come out of nowhere and is just put you in a position where you were just on your face uh, before Jesus. And maybe many of you this morning are like, not desperate, doing good. <laughs> Life's great. We're heading into the fall. Lots of energy, new things going on. Um, but let me tell you, God may bring a desperate person your way this week. You may know some desperate person in your network of friendships, relationships, or families who needs to hear about a Savior who meets desperate people with deep uh, compassion. And so uh, as we unfold this narrative this morning, we're going to find really three distinctive scenes that unfold in it. A desperate, the first one is a desperate synagogue leader meets an interruptible Savior. We're going to see that in verses 21 through 23. And scene two, a desperate and suffering woman meets a tender and compassionate Savior. And then in scene three, a despairing synagogue leader meets the Lord of life. These three scenes drive home Mark's point that Jesus responds to desperate faith with deep compassion. So my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would meet this same Jesus and his deep compassion for us uh, this morning. So let's pray uh, as we dive in. Father, uh, would you help us see uh, Jesus' willingness to move toward us in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of the chaos of our lives? Would you help us see his tenderness and compassion for the sensitive 
places in our lives uh, for the shame that we carry and the guilt that we feel and would ultimately we see his power to work and move uh, among us in the midst of those broken places, in the midst of those situations that seem uh, unsolvable, unreconcilable. Would you meet us very much in the midst of our chaos this morning by the power of your spirit? Would you come? Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start here uh, in scene one, verses 21 uh, through 24, which Susie just read for us. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. I love this narrative here. Like Jesus has just come across the Sea of Galilee, right? No storm this time. Smooth sailing. He's back again uh, with uh, Israelites over on, in Galilee uh, after his really intense confrontation with demons last week that Josh preached about. But in the middle of this busy ministry scene, we see this local synagogue leader come and dramatically interrupt his ministry. Right? As a synagogue ruler, this man would have been a pillar in this small community, like one of the local like elders in our church, you know, one of the highly respected people, you know, kind of a man of God in the community. Right? He would have been a lay leader who helped organize uh, synagogue worship services, readings, prayers, those kind of things. So this is an important guy. And the reason he interrupts Jesus is that his 12-year-old daughter is very sick, in fact, on the brink of death. So imagine the situation, if you will, for a moment. The daughter's health is rapidly deteriorating. The family is in anguish, um, right? The parents are worried sick. And then this mysterious teacher returns to town, right? He's back in the region, and the synagogue ruler is so desperate that he is, you know, willing to go down to the Sea of Galilee, interrupt Jesus' ministry by dramatically falling at Jesus' feet. I don't know if you get a picture of this dignified old man just like on his face, like before Jesus. And, and I feel like we don't catch the desperation of this. Around us, and as we're we're thinking about a situation and a scene like this, I wonder uh, for you: When was the last time you literally fell at Jesus' feet? Like life just kind of came out from under you, and you were just like, "God, I've got nothing to offer but just my own need, my own helplessness, my own fears, my anxieties, and I'm just here at your feet." Right? There's something beautiful about the posture of our bodies matching the posture of our hearts, right? When we're just like on our face before Jesus. I'm worried sometimes that just living here in West Michigan and just surrounded by the comforts that we have and living in this little bubble, you know, there are wars going around in the world, there are people who are starving, there's violence, and we're just living here comfortably. Many of us are like West Michigan lifestyle and, you know, we may miss this level of desperation, or we may think that the crises in our lives don't rise to the level of just falling at Jesus' feet. And so I just want this image to grab you, because it's an image that comes up throughout the text. People just keep coming to Jesus and just falling 
at his feet. And I'm worried sometimes, like we just live a kind of comfortable middle-class morality where, you know, we've got a We've got our 401k, you know, we've got, got our health insurance, you know, we've got all the marvels of modern technology, and like we miss that desperation that we see here from Jairus, who's a city, he's a godly guy, uh, but just deeply in need of Jesus. And so I want the image to grab you and hold you as we move through this text. Uh, The synagogue leader's dramatic entrance helps us see something also that is beautiful about Jesus. Uh, I want you to notice the, I'm going to coin a word this morning, the interruptibility of Jesus, right? Jesus is the Messiah, right? He's the king. He is surrounded by crowds who are hanging on his every word and deed. He has important kingdom work to do in his life, right? I mean, he is about proclaiming the kingdom of God, right? What could be more important than that? But he is regularly interrupted by people and their problems, right? This is what's going on. And we don't see Jesus rebuking or shaming this man, right? Jesus doesn't say, I have important work to do and important people to see, so go talk to my secretary. I'll get back to you when my schedule clears up here. Notice in verse 24, Jesus simply goes with him. And I think that is just stunning, right? We, we pass over these expressions here. Jesus just goes with him, right? Jesus is not too important to have time for you, right? One of Jesus' most precious attributes is his interruptibility. And I wish, personally, I was more like that as a parent and a pastor, right? This is one of the areas I'd like to grow to be more like Jesus, right? I love his willingness to embrace interruptions, right? I can't multitask. So when I get interrupted, like, it just throws my entire world into chaos. Some of you may be able to relate to that, right? And sometimes, even worse, I get the foolish idea that I'm too important to be interrupted, or the work that I'm doing is too important, right? I'm doing the Lord's work here. So, you know, kids, don't interrupt your dad while he's doing this important work of the Lord, right? And that's not how Jesus sees his ministry. He's always open to the interruptions, the needs that are around him. And there is, of course, wisdom to having boundaries in your life. Um, But aren't you glad Jesus is willing to be interrupted by our problems? Aren't you glad you don't have to make an appointment with him in advance, right? He's not checking his watch the entire time you're with him and spending time with him. He's not thinking about his next appointment, what he's going to have for lunch or which football team is playing today. Jesus in his encounters with people, right, he just locks onto people and then moved by compassion, enters into the challenges and difficulties of their lives. And I'm convinced that if we truly believe that, it would dramatically change our prayer life, the way we relate to Jesus if we sense the fact that he's available to meet with us. He wants to spend time with us. He loves being with his people. And we see this right here in beautiful beautiful fashion. So Jesus agrees to go with our desperate synagogue ruler, and the crowd follows, curious to see what's going to happen next. In verse 24, the narrative is interrupted, however, by yet another interruption and another desperate person, leaving us in suspense as to what's going to happen to this man's sick daughter. So we pick the story up here in scene two with a desperate and suffering woman here, which we pick up that story in verse 25 
through 29. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Mark introduces us to a woman who is out of options, right? She has had this chronic condition for 12 years. She's suffered under many physicians who are unable to help. She has spent all of her money. um, And to add insult to injury, uh, Mark tells us that she is in worse shape than when she started. This is a poignant picture of a desperate person, right? She has tried absolutely everything only to find yourself in a worse position. I don't know if you can relate to that. You frantically scramble about, tried everything to do and end up just in a worse position than when you started. However, this woman has heard reports about Jesus and she's curious. She has this hope that maybe this person can make her well, but her condition makes her ceremonially unclean, right? In Jewish law, anyone or anything she touched would become unclean. This woman is similar in many ways to a leper, right? If she touches anyone or anyone touches her, they're going to be ceremonially unclean for the rest of the day. They can't go anywhere or do anything. So this woman has been a social outcast for 12 years. Imagine, right? No one wants to touch you. No one wants to be near you. And the one thing she needs is a touch from Jesus. And so she's been in this position, but throws caution to the wind. She decides only she can reach out and touch just Jesus' cloak. She will be healed. So she's so desperate, she jostles her way through the crowd, right? Making everyone she comes in contact with unclean until she's able to approach Jesus, not, not up front, but just sneaks up behind him and just, just brushes the, the hem of his garment, just a little touch there, and she's instantly, miraculously healed. And now this physical healing, right, is all this woman could imagine or hope for. Like, she's been healed, and she's just ready to just kind of slip off anonymously into the crowd. But Jesus wants so much more for her. Jesus wants to reveal his, the depth of his tenderness and compassion for her. So we see Jesus' response, Jesus' tender and compassionate response in verses 30 through 32. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus stops the whole whole parade Right As they're heading to Jairus' house, he stops everything to figure out who touched him. Right In a moment of comic relief, the disciples are like, Rabbi, like everybody's touching you. Like What do you mean? We're in the middle of a giant, massive crowd that is just 
gathering around you. Like, what are you thinking? But Jesus just patiently scans the crowd, waiting for this mysterious person to reveal themselves. Or you can imagine Jairus is shuffling impatiently, like, we have an important appointment to get to. The disciples are mystified. The crowd is wondering what the holdup is. But realizing that she has been discovered, the woman approaches Jesus with fear and trembling, not sure what kind of welcome she's going to receive. And she just falls down before him and told him the whole truth. Not only does she have the faith to reach out and touch Jesus' garment, she finds the courage to be honest about her very shameful social condition and all of the taboos that she has broken to reach Jesus, right? She has to admit, right, that she has had this condition that's made her unclean and that she has made all these people in the crowd unclean. What is going to happen? Is Jesus going to shame her and turn her away? Jesus' response is beautiful, right? He immediately disarms her fears, tenderly calling her daughter, you just see Jesus' gentleness in this exchange. He calls attention to her faith as a channel through which the healing powers come, right? This is not just superstition. You need to go touch the, you know, the teacher's robe and walk away. Jesus is saying, it's your faith that made your faith in me as a person, right? As the Messiah that has made you well. And then Jesus wants her to see that not only has she been healed physically, Jesus wants more for her. Jesus wants her to see that she has been purified ceremonially by her encounter with Jesus, right? And, and that's not at all what the crowd was expecting, right? Instead of making Jesus unclean, Jesus has made her clean, removing her shame and restoring her place in society right in front of this entire crowd. Jesus is talking about a great reversal that would have blown everyone's mind in the crowd. Instead of this uncleanness passing from person to person, through an encounter with Jesus, she's been made clean and everyone in this crowd has been made clean through an encounter with Jesus' purifying power. It's a beautiful display of tenderness and compassion and restoration with this woman who's living as a social outcast for 12 years. Jesus has welcomed her back into the community, healed her condition. And finally, Jesus sends her off with a beautiful blessing or benediction. Go, in peace, go with God's blessing. God has made you whole. Uh, go in peace. And what I want you to see in this second scene is that Jesus is not merely interruptible, right? These interruptions create space for a new relationship to form, for Jesus' compassion to be demonstrated, and for Jesus' healing power to be on display. I love how James Edwards puts this in his commentary. He says, In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meaning. Miracles are not just a spectacle, right? Jesus is not just a traveling magician, a traveling, you know, worker of great wonders. Those miracles are there because Jesus wants to meet people. Jesus wants them to encounter him. That's why Jesus is willing to stop and wait till this woman comes into, into his actual life and into a relationship with him. Jesus stops this entire crowd because he wants to meet this woman. He wants to restore her physically and ceremonially and psychologically and socially to wholeness. He's throwing wide the door of welcome into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is still doing that very thing today. He tenderly meets us in our desperation, but he doesn't stop there. He enters into a relationship and will settle for nothing less than ultimately making us whole. 
Right? We can bring the tender and shameful parts of ourselves to Jesus for healing because he's so gracious and compassionate. And so this morning, as you think of those taboo areas, those areas where shame maybe is ruling in your life, where you feel the weight and the burden of guilt, um, there's an invitation here, Jesus, to bring those to Jesus in his compassion and tenderness. He wants to meet you in those sensitive places. A couple months back, a couple who had never been, at least the husband hadn't been in church before in his entire life, came and was just sitting in the back um, and just crying, just weeping through the entire gathering. Shannon Madison uh, ended up getting back after the service to talk with her a little bit and just kind of through tears just hear uh, this story about just really just gut-wrenching miscarriage that they had just gone through. And she was just stunned that like a church that they didn't even attend was sending meals to this woman to support her while she was walking through just what had been just a horrendous miscarriage. And so she was like, we just felt like we needed to be in church. But then she apologized. She's like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just crying the whole time. And Shane was just like, church is a wonderful place to be crying. Like, there's a, this is a beautiful, safe place for you to just pour out your heart to God. And I just love that our church is the kind of place, right? It was just like, it was just a ministry of tears happening that morning. You know, this woman is just sobbing, and Shannon is crying, Jamie is crying, like all these people are crying. It's just like beautiful picture of what the church should be to people that don't get an exposure to the safety and compassion and mercy and kindness of Jesus. And so I was struck by that. I'm like, that's happening right here. The church is, as we often say, it's not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners, right? A place where broken people can come and be ministered to a place where people can just cry and and share their heart with Jesus because he's so compassionate and so tender. So in scene one, Jairus interrupts Jesus and and Jesus expresses his willingness to help. In scene two, a desperate woman interrupts Jesus and we see his deep compassion and tenderness. And finally, Scene three, I realize this is like three sermons here. There's so much in this text here, but they're all, they all fit together. They're all driving home Jesus' point. They're all taking us somewhere. In scene three, we come to the resolution of the story, right? How will this story end for Jairus and his sick daughter? In verse 35, the story takes yet another unexpected turn. And so we pick it up again, if you're following along, in verse 35 and 36, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said to him, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. I love that. Do not fear, only believe. The messengers from Jairus' house extinguish all hope. This is the end of the story. There's no need to bother the teacher anymore. Because we all know no one can bring this girl back from the dead. There is an awful finality to their message. Deep despair for everyone around, for the family, uh, for the followers, for the crowd. But once again, Jesus is raising the stakes. He tells Jairus, do not fear, only believe. He's calling Jairus to upgrade his faith from a healing to a resurrection. 
Right? We just, the stakes have just been raised significantly. And now we might be tempted to take these words out of context. And some of you of a more skeptical bent might be like, yeah, Christianity is, you know, all about blind faith. Just believe, don't doubt, and all. Don't ask questions, you know. This is why context is so important for us to think through. Jesus is not calling Jairus to make some crazy leap of faith in the dark. Rather, he's inviting him into a deeper relationship, right? Remember, miracle leads to meeting. Jesus is drawing this man in, right? He has just seen Jesus' compassion for the woman revealed. He's seen Jesus' miraculous power at work, and he's inviting him to an even deeper, more profound, more powerful work. And the question Jesus is posing, can you trust me with your daughter, this beautiful 12-year-old daughter that you love so much that you so long to see healing. So you can imagine the scene here at the house, like there's mourning, there's weeping. In fact, in ancient cultures, they actually hired professional mourners to mourn, which actually worked really well, right? They would just be weeping and wailing so the family members wouldn't be embarrassed, right, if they had to express their grief in more profound ways. In some ways, the ancient world was a little more compassionate than our kind of sterile, non-emotional world. There were, there were real space for grieving to happen, for people to be able to express themselves. Um, in fact, uh, one of the rabbis in the Mishnah said, even the poorest in Israel do not hire less than two flute foot players and one wailing woman. You know, try that for a funeral today. Here, <laughs> got to hire us some wailing women and some, uh, some flute players, but just to give people a space to grieve and an opportunity to be there. And that's where uh, we find ourselves in the text. Jesus enters this chaotic scene in verse 38. Again, if you are following along, they came to the house, the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in to where the child was. And so you can imagine, right, the scene. You know, Jesus is stepping on the place saying, She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Everyone's like, trust me, we know what a dead person looks like. In the first century, the mortality, infant mortality rate was horrific. Like people died from all kinds of common causes. People were surrounded by death. They saw it up close and personal every day. Um, They were not at all like in any way, you know, naive to what death looked like. They knew a dead person when they saw it. And so when Jesus tells her she's sleeping, they laugh in a deeply cynical and skeptical way. Way. And Jesus, you know, is undeterred by their reaction, right? He sends them out of the room, and then he steps onto the scene, gathers his disciples, grabs, uh, the, uh, grabs the mother and the father, and then we see here in verse 39, Jesus in action, actually in verse 41, Jesus went into where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha which means little girl, I say to you, Arise, And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I love this final scene in the story, this final climactic scene. Uh, Jesus demonstrates that he's not simply available and compassionate. He is the Lord of life and death, right? These early chapters show 
Jesus on mission to confront humanity's greatest enemies. He's confronted the unruly forces of nature by calming a storm. In chapter 4, he has confronted the supernatural forces of evil. We saw last week in chapter 5, 1 through 20, and here he confronts death itself. And uh, we see in this case, Jesus just calmly strolling up to the bedside, just casually in Aramaic, just saying, little girl, it's time to wake up from your nap. And immediately, she just rises up out of her bed, starts walking around, and Jesus even has thought for, yeah, give the girl a snack. <laughs> She's been through a lot. Uh, just see Jesus' beautiful compassion. I mean, what a beautiful touch to that story. Jesus' gentleness and talking to this sweet little girl. Jesus thought for every step here, Jesus is Lord, right? He's Lord of nature. He's Lord over the demonic realm. He is Lord even over death. And the encouragement here at the end of this text is that if Jesus takes you by the hand, if Jesus grabs hold of your hand like he grabbed hold of this 12-year-old, you can go through absolutely anything, the storms of life, demonic opposition, and even death itself. If Jesus has got you, you are going to be okay. Now, this is Jesus' first uh, confrontation with death, but it won't be his last, right? The irony is that Jesus, though Jesus is Lord over life and death, his compassion leads him ultimately and inevitably to the cross. Jesus brought Jairus' daughter back to life, but she would still eventually die. The death penalty that God had imposed back in the garden for Adam and Eve's disobedience could be postponed, but it could not ultimately be Overturned For God's people to finally be set free from death, Jesus would have to face death in our place, in the place of this little girl, in the place of all of his people. And so in the greatest display of compassion imaginable, Jesus would give his life in exchange for us. He would be separated from his father so that we could, that nothing we do in our lives could ultimately separate us from his love. And after defeating death, Jesus rose again to open wide the door to life in the kingdom of God. Of course, the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, is all about uh, inviting us now into a life changing encounter with Him, to be a part of this new family that He's forming, this new kingdom that He has started. Which brings us to the Lord's table. And uh, I want to just walk down here with you to the table and uh, give you an opportunity for a meal with Jesus. Jesus is alive this morning, right? And he is seated at his Father's right hand, and he invites us each week here at Redemption City uh, to gather together around a table to have Jesus minister to us. Uh, Each week here at Redemption City, we, we celebrate the opportunity for this meal with Jesus. The Apostle Paul uh, tells us that he received this instruction directly from the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember it to me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so if you are not a Christian here this morning, this meal isn't for you, but it is a signpost pointing you to Jesus' tenderness and compassion. 
right? You can bring your desperate, fleeting faith to him. You can fall at his feet, or if all you can do is just reach out and just touch uh, the hem of his clothes, just reach out to him in prayer. Uh, No matter where you're at this morning, he wants to welcome you home this morning. He wants to meet you in those tender and broken places. Jesus is such a compassionate uh, Savior, and we want nothing more than for you to know him uh, this morning. And this meal, well, not for you, is an invitation. It's a signpost to put your faith in him, to enter into that relationship for yourself. If you're a Christian, this is a moment in our gathering, we've set aside for you to spend time with Jesus. It's called communion because you get to commune with Jesus. You get to share a meal with him. And so if you haven't shared your joys and sorrows with Jesus this week, if you missed all of your quiet times, if you have failed in your Christian life uh, in so many ways, this is your moment right here to spend time with Jesus. If there are broken, tender, sensitive places in your heart, Jesus wants to meet you here around this supper, which reminds us of the depth of his love and the depth of his compassion for us. So so spend some time this morning with Jesus and hearing maybe the words that he has to speak uh, to you. You know, you can linger over this meal as well. You don't have to run up here. Here at Redemption City, we do just kind of file down through the sides. You can break off a piece of the bread here, dip it in the cup, or you can take some of the little packets from the back. But just want to invite you in this uh, tender, intimate space here around a meal to remember the reality. As real as this bread, as real as this wine, so is the reality of our relationship with Jesus. And he wants to spend time with you this morning. So take a few minutes uh, to spend some time with Jesus and then come when you're ready to partake here of the bread and the wine. Let me pray for you in brief here. Father, as we gather around this table, God, I pray that the the tenderness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus would be palpable, that it'd be real, that it'd be felt. If there are people far from you this morning, that they'd sense how close you've come all the way down to our world. When we couldn't earn our way up to you, you came down to meet us, God. For those of us that are struggling, that are straying this morning, God, that they'd just sense this welcome home of the Father uh, this morning, even around this table. So you pray that you'd meet us in this meal, in Jesus' name. Amen.